0: My husband has this crazy yellow Hawaiian shirt that he likes to wear on hot days. I don't think it's meant to be ironed, but I can't look at him in a wrinkled shirt. He was wearing that shirt today, and all day I kept beating myself up over this very odd rippled wrinkle on the shoulder area. I continue to be very low on funds at the moment, and I'm totally out of dryer sheets, so perhaps it was just static. No, it was a very bad wrinkle and it was all I could look at when I was sitting across the table from him. How in the world did I miss a wrinkle that big when I was ironing? Are my standards slipping? Who am I without my ironing standards? Clearly, the wrinkle was bugging me. Then, just before bed, when my husband was pulling off the shirt, out flew a pair of my Jessica Simpson brand panties. The little green undies with the gray dots had been missing from my rotation for about a week, and I'd been wondering where they were. Three mysteries were solved in one moment. My panties were found, it was static, and I'm still really good at ironing. (laughs) Phew! The idea that my underwear was having a day out and about on my husband's shoulder is pretty funny to me now, but being wired the way I am has made the past decade of my life a lot more difficult than it's needed to be. And there was a time when a pair of stowaway panties could have dissolved me to tears. When I had a lot of money, I was pretty tightly strung and I had trouble settling for less than perfection in my life. I didn't realize back then how rigid and narrow my thinking was, and in many ways it's been a relief to let some of my perfectionism die off. But you should know this, even now I am not laid back. I'm a Virgo with a healthy splash of OCD woven into my DNA and it's not easy for me to let things go especially when it comes to my environment. I like things clean and pressed and well-organized, and I love it when things smell good too. My favorite aisle at the grocery store is the cleaning supply aisle. I could spend a good half hour just sniffing, pondering, and considering the cleaning merits of every product lining the shelves. But when you have a financial setback that's as significant as the one my husband and I went through starting in 2008, Well, let's just say you have to learn how to skimp. And I've had to learn how to make do. And frankly, I've had to settle for way less than perfect and then find the grace inside of my heart to believe that's still okay. Hey everyone, I'm Sonya Bentley Zant and welcome to another episode of Nerd Alert. That was an excerpt from my memoir, The Imposition Tour, and... That chapter is fittingly entitled, Stowaway Panties. But to me, it just seemed like a solid intro to use for the topic I want to tackle in episode two. And that's the topic of perfection. I know I'm not alone when it comes to being a perfectionist because many of the people I admire the most in my life claim to struggle with perfectionism too. But I think I've probably struggled with the desire to do everything as perfectly as possible for my entire life, and in my case at least, I can see that my perfectionism hasn't always been about doing the things I do flawlessly so people will notice me. instead, I think my motivation has mostly been the opposite. I've always wanted to do things perfectly so people won't notice my mistakes so much. I've always been aware of how many mistakes I make, and I get how flawed I am. And I guess in some strange way, it's always been easier for me to accept my flaws and then try to cover them up perfectly in an attempt to make you see me as perfect, even though I know I'm not. That's probably a subtle difference in the grand scheme of things, but all of my attempts to do things well are most often guided around finding the best workarounds to keep your eyes off the things I might goof up, while still asking you to see me, but only in the best light. Sheesh, I'm complicated. But just so you know, my inner monologue has this crummy guy living among the mix of voices It's a real jerk. In fact, that's his name, The Jerk. And The Jerk in me seeks out my mistakes, and then he logs all of them in a big, thick ledger. I've had The Jerk in my mind since I was a kid, and he's a very familiar voice in my head that reminds me of how often I embarrass myself when I try to do big things. Yet, The Jerk can never fully stop me from trying. Back when I was in elementary school, I was at terrible speller. But just like I am now, I was a very passionate storyteller, which made writing stories kind of tricky for me at times, that's for sure. But my sweet mom saved a box full of old storybooks I created when I was a kid, and the one that makes me laugh the most is also the one that makes me cringe inside because I feel so sorry for my younger self whenever I think about that story. I remember I was so proud of this particular story I wrote in third grade because I made what I thought was an excellent construction paper cover with those gold brads running down the spine, and the content had this awesome story arc in it. I was also incredibly excited about how I turned my sister's two gerbils into the main two characters in the story, and they could talk and think and dream. But the way he always does, the jerk has permanently documented that instead of spelling gerbils, I messed up the word and spelled jablas. And the gerbils were supposed to be named Jeffy and Johnny, but in my story I spelled Jeffy Jaffy instead. Even though my teacher was very gracious in how she pointed out my errors, the blood still drains from my face a little when I remember how sad I felt about my mistakes. But because I'm a glutton, the storyteller in me only grew more passionate, and thankfully I've had access to spell check technologies for most of my life now. But knowing that the jerk is still living inside of me, keeping track of my blunders in the ledgers, does make me feel vulnerable most of the time. The jerk has notations in that ledger about my published novel, too, Hurricane Season, because in classic Sonya form, there are mistakes that I missed in the final edit of that book, too. Oh, Sonya. Maybe by now you're starting to see that I'm more compelled to cling to the record of my mistakes more tightly than I cling to the passions inside of me that give me my greatest sense of purpose. And that's where the quest for perfection trips me up the most. The good news for everyone who knows me is that the jerk's ledger doesn't log the mistakes of others all that much. I mean, there are some entries about other people in there for sure, but If you could climb inside my mind and pry the ledger away from the jerk, you'd see for yourself that nearly every single entry chronicles every single mistake I've ever made. And it's all written there in the jerk's ugly, albeit perfect, black handwriting. And it's the existence of that ledger that often keeps me from acting on things I know I'm meant to do. As soon as I have the impulse to move on an idea... The jerk quickly flips to the page in the ledger where I tried and failed at something similar. And then he says something in my brain like, um, you already tried that back in 2010 and you totally bombed. It wasn't pretty to watch. and Lots of people noticed. So why don't you wait until you know that you can do it perfectly this time around, okay? That kind of exchange has caused me to waste years of my life stewing and spinning on ideas simply because I'm not sure if I can pull off my plans perfectly enough because my mistakes are always so common. But then there are times that my passions are simply too strong and I blow off the jerk and his warnings and I try to do something anyway. Occasionally things will work out, but most of the time I do end up balming out again. And that's when I can hear the jerk saying... See, I told you this would happen. Now I need to add another notation to the ledger. With you, there's always so much paperwork. (laughs) It's funny, but I know there's a paragraph in my memoir somewhere where I compare myself to a boxer who can't stay out of the ring, even though I get punched in the face over and over again. So a part of me realizes that the jerk is sort of trying to protect me from myself. Yet, the jerk only has one standard of measure for entries in his ledger, and That's the standard of imperfection. If something I do can't be qualified as perfect, then the jerk creates an enduring record for me to remember. Even though the jerk and I are probably the only ones who really care. Maybe you don't have any pronounced voices in your inner monologue, but clearly I do. And even though the jerk is persistent and always hypercritical when it comes to my mistakes... There are so many other voices crowding out the jerk in my mind that my mistakes and my failures never derail me for very long. So I think once my mistakes are logged into the ledger and the book is temporarily closed, I stupidly stumble and bumble my way back into things because the more hopeful voices in my inner monologue will never let me stop believing in myself. But leading up to starting Nerd Alert... The jerk was holding court in my head, and so it took me a while to push his concerns out of my mind enough so I could figure out how to move forward with my ideas. I guess it took me so long because the jerk brought up a lot of good points. You see, I've tried to do other clever things with my storytelling in the past, but it never got any traction, and it's not like I'm killing it with anything I'm currently doing these days, so why should I risk getting disappointed again by launching a podcast that no one listens to? Plus, because I'm such a huge fan of podcasting, the jerk didn't want me to create something that would be laughable. And I really do believe in doing things with the highest production value possible. I always want to do things perfectly if I can because that kind of stuff really matters to me, not just to the jerk. And so it took a lot of internal warfare to even take the first step toward creating a podcast. And just so you know... The Jerk has already logged the six or seven grammar use and word fumbles I had in episode one, and he's duly noted the sound quality issues I'm still trying to work out when I'm piecing the audio files together. So he hasn't been making getting started on this podcast all that easy on me. But I'm doing this anyway, because it matters more to me to keep trying than to be perfect, and that's kind of new for me. And that's the thing about The Jerk. He's always there pointing the finger at me for all of the ways I do things wrong. He never ever attends one of my mental triumph parties. And that's because these days, most of the parties I have in my mind are not about celebrating the things I've done perfectly. Rather, most of my mental parties are celebrating the fact that I'm actually going for it, flaws and all. Because when it comes to my passions, even the jerk can't totally keep me from trying. You probably noticed in the intro excerpt for this episode that I really have a thing for laundry. And if you've followed me on my blog, you've already noticed that I talk about my passion for doing laundry a lot. But I genuinely love ironing, and I love getting stains out of clothing. And I love keeping things fresh and tidy in my world. And for me, since the past 12 years or so have been so upending and chaotic, Perfectly cleaning and pressing all of our clothing has created a heightened sense of relief for me, especially when there's no other area of my life where seeking even a hint of perfection to cover up my mistakes seems reasonable to me. And honestly, finding perfection in my laundry is almost always enough to keep me going. So, if I was living in a perfect world right now, and if I was doing an amazing job as a podcaster this is where my first sponsorship shout-out would fit into the flow of this episode. And since I'm talking about my perfect world here, my sponsor would be Procter & Gamble, makers of the most important cleaning product in my life, Tide Original. (laughs) And even though I might get in trouble for saying all of this out loud on my podcast, when I play this whole thing out in my mind, I can imagine myself saying this... Nerd Alert is proud to feature our lead sponsor, Tide Original Laundry Detergent, the most reliable kind of perfection you can find in the cleaning supply aisle. You can trust Tide Original to get your clothes clean, but you can also trust it to be there for you when you need a fresh start. That's what Tide's done for me, and that's why I'm so happy to have Tide Original as my lead sponsor for this podcast. Just so you know, I'd say all of that with genuine passion, even though I'd be being paid for that endorsement in my perfect world. But I would know I'd say it with conviction, because I really do believe in Tide. And if this sponsorship thing could ever happen, I'd be honored to join the likes of the Gronk, and together we could pitch Tide Peds, and the incredible cleaning strength found in that one mighty little packet. Although, when you think about it, wouldn't it be awesome if Tide asked me to host the first ever Tide Pods cast? I mean, doesn't that just seem like a no-brainer? I could talk people through how to get stubborn stains out of all sorts of fabrics. I've even used Tide Original to get a terrible stain out of my carpet a few times. And of course, the Gronk could join me on my Tide Pats cast, if he wanted to, but honestly, I can't imagine that Rob Gronkowski has a deep kind of devotion and passion for Tide Original the way that I do. And it's also kind of difficult for me to picture the Gronk doing a load of laundry in the first place. Anyway, sorry for that weird detour. Even though I don't always know how to do things perfectly, I feel so thankful for the fact that I'm never at a loss for ideas, even if my ideas are a little wacky or off-base. I guess what I lack in perfection I feel like I make up for in my passion, and my genuine feelings for ideas like my Tide sponsorship are no exception. I guess that's because having Tide in my life means laundry mistakes can happen anytime because I always know I can get things clean, and I can always start over and make things right if I need to. I guess I just need some kind of internal Tide equivalent to get the ink stains out from the jerks' notations, I suppose. The truth is, I I know what the Tide equivalent for removing emotional stains is. It's called grace. And it's my inner grace right now that's keeping this podcast in forward motion. I don't even care if you have grace for me right now because in this moment, I have plenty of grace to go around. Okay, so... The thing I really want to explore in the remainder of this episode is how the quest for perfection can often be the primary thing that robs me, at least, of my opportunities because striving for a form of perfection always makes me start to worry about my inevitable mistakes. And I know everyone makes them, but sometimes I wonder if I make more than other people. Anyway, so I was thinking about this. Is the true opposite of perfection actually epic failure? Perhaps. Lately, there have been a lot of articles on my newsfeed about the value of failure, and I do feel like there's a sense of freedom that comes over me when I decide to try something big with the permission to fail in the mix of my mind somewhere. But that idea also leads me to the really heady question I want to pick at in this episode. Is there really such a thing as perfection in the first place? Or is there some kind of machine behind a curtain that's deceiving us into believing that perfection is something we can actually attain in this world? Perhaps those are a few more perfect questions for me to be asking. Nerd alert! You've been warned! I'm always trading podcast suggestions with my sister and she's actually the first person to get me started with my podcast obsession so I guess I should probably thank her. Thanks, Bee. You're awesome. But not too long ago, she sent me a link to an episode from a pretty interesting podcast series called Spectacular Failures. Gosh, what a great collection of stories. And the host, Lauren Ober, has this kind of presentation style that makes me wish I could be her friend. She's kind of snarky, but she's also kind. And she seems to use her words carefully when talking about how things fall apart on people. Lauren's also pretty balanced in how she takes the listener into the messy aftermath of a huge and truly spectacular fail, and so far, every episode I've listened to has been really respectful while still being incredibly revealing. But just so you can get a better angle on the podcast series, here's the show overview notes directly from their website. Corporate crookedness. Family feuding. Hilariously half-baked decisions. Host Lauren Ober tackles some of the most spectacular business failures of all time and what could have been done to avoid them. Some of these stories are shocking, some are funny, some are just downright sad, but each one will give you a totally new perspective on big business and big failure. So far I've listened to all but one episode of Spectacular Failures and There's this emerging theme I keep getting over and over again in my mind. Every single failure that's featured in this series starts out with someone taking a really big risk. But then something the risk taker can't foresee or control takes over and things quickly decline into a spectacular failure. There are quite a few cringeworthy layers in most of these stories and sadly... Sometimes the thing the risk-taker can't foresee or control is how success transforms a person into a (laughs) paranoid crook sometimes. But all of these stories are considered epic fails because at one point in time, they were also considered to be a huge success. I guess in a way you can't be a failure without a direct comparison to some form of success, right? And you really can't fail if you never try to do anything. So if you don't try, you might be able to call your track record perfectly void of failure, but there really won't be anything of note to put in your so-called record in the first place. For me, one of the standout episodes of this series was the one entitled Kodak Misses Its Moment. It was really interesting to hear short interviews with various people who worked for this super famous company that literally provided the masses with the earliest way to archive our memories, I think that's what impressed me so much about this podcast episode. Kodak was responsible for our relationship with captured images in time, and that's truly something in my book. But it's the hugeness of Kodak's success and major contributions to the world that made their ultimate fall so spectacular. And in all of the ways that at one moment in time, Kodak reached the absolute apex of perfection in the world of photography and film, No one can ever stay on that tippy spot of greatness for very long, because the world is always changing. And so the only way to ever find another moment like that in your future is to risk it all over again, knowing that failure is always nipping at your heels. I'm married to a serial entrepreneur who doesn't get too caught up in the perfection conversations that plague me and ultimately keep me from doing the things in my life that I really want to do. In fact, my husband Lou has a pretty storied career that includes a lot of major hits, but so many of Lou's greatest successes are overshadowed by some pretty big failures too. And even though Lou does beat himself up for failures in his past, one of the things I admire the most about my husband is how he never stops trying or believing in his next big idea. I do have people in my life who love Lou and me very deeply, but I often sense them judging us for the weird ways we both keep trying to do things in our lives, and I always forgive them for the questions they ask me with a tinge of judgment mixed in because it's not easy to watch people you love fail, but it's also not easy to watch someone you love stay stuck by never trying to take any kind of risk too. I was just saying the other day to a friend of mine who's got a gutsy entrepreneur in her life too that A risk that works out well makes an entrepreneur a hero but the risk that fails always seems to make that same entrepreneur a zero. Living in the San Francisco Bay Area only adds some intensity to that hero versus zero perspective because we celebrate the innovator here more than they do in most places. and We champion people who set out to change the world so much so that sometimes venture funds in the Silicon Valley will ignore the facts in exchange for good fiction. Just because it sounds so exciting. Nerd alert. You've been warned. Case in point, the story of Elizabeth Holmes as chronicled in the totally excellent podcast series called The Dropout. I'm sure you've heard of it because everyone talked about this podcast when it first came out. But if I can just say this, dude, that was a totally binge-worthy podcast, even if you've already seen the HBO docuseries. Something about the interviews in this audio series broke my heart differently than the HBO narrative did. I guess when I listen to a podcast, it's as if the voices of the people enter into my awareness with this sincerity and an unvarnished quality that must mix with my thoughts more powerfully. And so in the dropout, when these really famous people who have done huge things in the tech industry with Apple and other major players like that try to explain how they were duped by Elizabeth Holmes. I just connect with their bewilderment and self-questioning on such a personal level. And I identify with the self-judgment they're trying to lift off of themselves by explaining how they didn't see the fraud right in front of them, mostly because they wanted to believe that the risks they were taking would pay off. They all really believed they were going to change the world. Even though when you're armchair reviewing the situation, it's so easy to wonder why they would believe in someone like Elizabeth Holmes, who was so incredibly unqualified to lead such a group. But I guess my point in all of this is to say, before there's perfection or failure, there's risk. And risk is something that leads people like me and the people in the dropout, as well as all of the folks featured in Spectacular Failures, to never stop believing that maybe this one time... If we just go for it, things will work out. And what I'm learning about myself now more than ever is that I'm growing more willing to let my perfectionism for the sake of hiding my mistakes go. And I'm starting to line up the risks I know I'm finally ready to handle, no matter the outcome. Nerd alert. You've been warned. (laughs) Boy, these nerd alerts are just tumbling in. There's another really great podcast series produced by Wondery, and it's called American Scandal. It's hosted by a journalist named Lindsey Graham, and I really like his style. He's a great explainer, and he builds up each season that I've listened to in these really enticing layers. Now, there are nine seasons of American Scandal so far, which makes this series one of those extra nerdy podcasts I can binge on when I'm doing a bunch of housework and laundry and when I'm ironing loose shirts, making sure they're all panty-free. Anyway, I've listened to several seasons of this series, but the one I want to highlight in this episode of Nerd Alert is Season 6, Payola. Wow, was it interesting. It's about the music industry, and oh my gosh, I had no idea how tricky things were back in the early days of rock and roll, but also, it was a surprise to learn how little things have changed. To help you get the flavor of season six, I've put together my own version of a synopsis by transcribing part of Lindsey Graham's intro to the first episode and then adding that to the show notes. I just really want you to see why this podcast ended up in my podcast about perfection. Most people don't really think about how a new song gets on the radio. We tend to assume the most popular records, the ones that sell the most, get requested the most and are popular because people like them. That's what the pop in pop music is short for, popular. And that's what the record industry wants us to think. That's why they maintain things like the Top 40 Charts, which rank songs based on quantifiable numbers like sales and what's called rotation, how often a record gets played on the radio. The more copies a record sells, the more spins it gets, and the higher it climbs the charts. It's a level playing field, one on which anyone with talent and a good song can have a hit. Except it's not a level playing field. Some records have an advantage, a big label backing them with a big marketing budget. And some companies use that budget to bribe DJs to play their songs. The songs become hits not because they're popular, but because their airtime was bought and paid for. In this season of American Scandal, host Lindsey Graham looks deeper into the history of this delicate system of secret bribes and kickbacks used to transform a mediocre song into a hit, which is called Payola. This is the story of how Payola started, the attempts to end it, and how it ultimately shaped the music we hear as well as the music we don't sounds juicy, right? It kind of is. I actually binged this six-part series of American Scandal in one day. I started it out on a hike, and then I finished it with a zesty cocktail on my porch after a full day of cleaning and scrubbing my house to make it extra sparkly. And the whole time I was cleaning, I was learning how songs starting in the 1950s gained popularity in those early days of radio and How the slimy and manipulative ways of record producers and their $50 handshakes started influencing everything about music, back then as well as now. Now, I won't spoil this series for you, but my mind was overwhelmed with useful thoughts as I listened to this season of American Scandal. And even though I'm not a musician or a songwriter, I do consider myself to be a creative artist, and for me, I discovered a direct connection to this series because one thing every artist needs is an audience of consumers who want to engage with your art. And once money and art collide, there's plenty of room for scandal. When I was listening to the Paola season of American Scandal, it, It became very clear to me that record producers were highly incentivized to make a song a hit because they were personally backing the artists not only as their producers, but sometimes as the ones who were profiting from making the actual records themselves. Even Dick Clark was in on this arrangement and stood to make money from several different revenue streams off the success of one hit song, and his ability to influence the music industry was legendary from the start. But back in the day, the way a hit got made was by buying airtime for certain songs and playing them so often that they were forever burned into the soundtracks of people's minds. Very often, the songs weren't really great, but they had enough going for them that if they were played often enough, people started to think they were good. And so in some ways, the familiarity of the song created this exchange of sorts that made people think they really liked the song just because they've heard it a thousand times familiarity and popularity kind of went hand in hand, and if you listen to terrestrial radio these days, that concept is still alive and well in the modern music era. And for me, at least, I'm not buying it. In my very early days as an author, the show American Idol just came out, and in those first few seasons, the caliber of the auditions was not as solid as they seem to be now, so the gag reel of tone-deaf people who really believed they were amazing singers was one of the standout elements of that show. But those segments always gave me such a headache. That kind of stuff still bugs me now. I just can't stand how painful it can be to watch someone take a risk on themselves when they have no idea how terrible they are at the thing they really want to do. I think I know where the headache comes from. It's the jerk, and he's looking for a ledger somewhere to jot down the imperfections of another artist. But no such ledger exists in me for someone else, and so all the jerk can do is bash the person in my brain, which always makes me feel like such a horrible person. The jerk is kind of a dream stealer, but he's also not wrong about when I'm missing the mark or when someone else is out of his or her league but I don't know what to do when I'm watching a terrible audition because it feels personal somehow and just hurts. Ever since I first launched myself into the world as a storyteller, I'm constantly asking confidants I've had in my life if I'm delusional or if I remind them of one of the tone-deaf singers on a reality show. I usually pick people who I believe won't lie to me because this is a tough question and I'm sure it would be difficult for them to say it to my face. But still... I sense that I'm doing what I'm good at when I'm writing or sharing stories, yet I know there's this machine out there that has the power to alter things for the lowly artists like me, and truthfully, that machine really scares me. Perhaps I'm too cynical, or maybe I'm even bitter. But I guess I just can't help but notice how influenced most of the art we consume in huge quantities is in our culture. And I think in some ways, the way things are influenced causes us to think there is such a thing as perfection. Perfect art meets perfect timing meets perfect future filled with opportunities, fame, fortune, and so much more. That's what the so-called merchants of cool are selling us. And as much as I've wanted to experience my lucky break... I guess it wouldn't feel right to me if I was just a product of some kind of payola system out there. I don't think that would feel right. And I think it would compromise me too much. Okay, so if someone like a Dick Clark or a Simon Cowell can add enough layers of magic here and there to the production to make a so-so song or a so-so singer worthy of the masses attention and then if the right channels for finding the thing every artist and their producer needs the most to survive which is consumers is created in the form of a dance show or a reality series or by greasing the palms of the right people in the modern-day equivalent of the $50 handshake then anyone can be a superstar right I mean if this is how it works then the perfect song can be manufactured to create the perfect outcome And as long as everyone's happy, this should be enough, right? It should be, but for me, all of this reveals the brassy tone on the golden ring that is perfection. And it makes me feel like in all of the ways I've hidden myself for fear of missing the mark of perfection, it's a stupid focus for me. I mean, I know it's not totally fair for me to compare my experiences as an author to what a musician faces, because... It's a totally different world, and our talents have only the smallest, tangential connections. But if I can get us back on topic here, what I'm really exploring is whether or not there really is such a thing as real perfection in this world, especially when it comes to art. And for me, the answer is simply no. I do believe there are such things as high production value, people with incredible talent, and artist content out there that is stunningly worthy of our attention and our acclaim. But perfection? I just don't believe that's something anyone can measure or attain. I know I need to bring this episode to a close, and I also know I've covered a lot of angles when it comes to the idea or the quest for perfection. And what I really wish is that all of my musings and pondering thoughts could have provided me with the perfect kind of conclusion to help me at least gain the right kind of perspective for the life I've chosen to pursue as an author. But I know I didn't really solve that riddle for myself all that well, but it's okay because I feel like I did learn a few things. And one of those things is that after listening to all of those podcasts that I mentioned in this episode, one of the standout points I'd like to leave you with is this. I'm not alone. And if you're struggling with perfection, you aren't either. No one is perfect. Everyone has flaws and makes mistakes and probably struggles with self-doubt. I'd even be willing to bet that every person who's ever done something big has some kind of inner jerk inside of them that messes with his or her mind from time to time. I mean, the jerk's activities in someone else's mind may be quite different from my own, but... I feel certain that most people experience limiting forces in their lives that show up in the form of doubts, insecurities, and maybe even fear. But I guess for me, I can honestly look at myself knowing I'll always make mistakes, yet there will never be a time in my life where my transparency feels safer to me than it does now. I've never been more free in my exploration as a storyteller than I am in this moment, and I do believe it's my willingness to let go of this quest for the Perfect cover in my life that's giving me the chance to show up and do more than I ever have before. (laughs) I'm so sorry, but the jerk won't let me wrap up this episode without pointing out a few things. So I'm just going to rattle these things off, knowing that I might have missed something that the jerk noticed. But seriously, I need to let you get on your way. Okay, for starters, when I was talking about the Nerd Alert on the Dropout podcast, I should have said that the HBO show on Elizabeth Holmes wasn't a docu-series, but rather it was a full-length documentary, and the name of it was The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. Whew, nice catch, jerk. Okay, and then later on when I was talking about the nerd alert on American Scandal, I totally botched the pronunciation of the word terrestrial when I was talking about listening to the radio these days. That word isn't easy to say, but still, it does feel good to go back and make that right. Okay, and now for probably the biggest cleanup of all. When I said that the jerk doesn't keep tabs on the mistakes of other people all that often, the jerk pointed out that that's only mostly true. And to be completely truthful... I need to apologize to my husband for being the person in his real life who points out most of his mistakes. It's not just the wrinkles on my husband's shirt that I get so caught up in. I think because he's an extension of myself, my husband ends up being someone the jerk inside of me, monitors as critically as I monitor myself, and that doesn't make it right. Maybe there are other husbands and wives out there who have this same kind of mistake radar for each other, but when it comes to the small things, I think I'm always harder on Lou than I need to be. After I listened to this podcast, I realized that these days, perfection might not be easily achieved or even defined, but honesty is something I can keep better track of, especially when it comes to what I say and what I share on my blog or my podcast. So if you're listening, Lou, I'm sorry that the jerk in me is someone you actually know really well. And I promise I'll do better keeping him under wraps because I know you're always doing the best you can, just like me. Thanks for sticking with this episode of Nerd Alert. It means so much to me to picture someone on a hike or doing some mundane chore while unpacking the topic of perfection with me in the form of a podcast you have no idea how much of a kick I'm getting out of having my own series. And I know I can say that to you right now because at this point, if you're hearing my voice at all, then you're actually listening to my podcast. That's huge. Anyway, I've put the links to all of the podcasts I've mentioned in this episode in my show notes, as well as a link to my blog in case you want to keep reading the Stowaway Panties chapter from my memoir. But until next time... Nerd alert, you've been warned.